0: The most violence I saw was on Friday, May 29th. I saw a police officer drive a vehicle into a crowd of protesters. I thought he was gonna hit somebody. I saw three police officers holding a very small woman to the ground who was being completely compliant. She looked like she weighed about like 100 pounds. Um, I have no
1: idea why three people were needed to hold her down. It was horrifying how the NYPD aggressively, physically cleared the park, screaming, swinging batons at a group that had been entirely peace. I myself was slammed on the pavement by an officer while attempting to record other protesters being beaten on the ground. I saw
0: an officer aggressively shove a petite young woman named Dunya, who will testify later. I saw her fly back and hit her head on the ground. He had thrown her for no other reason than that he was angry and she was an easy target. I ran over with others and helped guide her to a stoop after she momentarily had blacked out. Neither the officer or any other surrounding officer stopped to see if she was okay. A few minutes later, she fell to the ground in a severe seizure. We had to scream for help before two officers finally came over. Neither
2: were helpful and it took a firefighter arriving to help stabilize her for paramedics. I
0: saw one of them push a journalist at this event whose like, press pass was displayed. I saw them knock over a guy on a bicycle who uh, looked like he was just standing there. I didn't I didn't know if he was like participating in a demonstration or not.
3: I heard no announcements
1: made by the NYPD before they decided to kill it. A line of NYPD officers in riot gear quickly moved in on the peaceful assembly, screaming to move, physically pushing and hitting with batons. Anyone who was in I can way. only assume that I had been targeted by the police for excessive force because I was attempting to
4: film.
0: I carried water and a first aid kit in my backpack and helped to street medic. Before the night was over, I had treated over 15 people who had been severely maced or beaten back by batons. Many were under the age of 18. I have a video of someone just standing in the middle of the road and like 20 cops swarming around the person and you can just hear them screaming in the background.
5: It felt like warfare. I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges.
3: I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Profits of Rage. And this is Newsbeat. Hey, everyone. This is Manny Faces, producer and host of the multi-award winning Newsbeat podcast. Welcome to a special bonus edition before we start, I just want to remind everyone to subscribe to or follow the show wherever you get podcasts so you never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, we ask you to leave a rating and a review while you're at it. To make that easy, head over to ratethispodcast.com/slash newsbeat, one word, to leave a review on your favorite podcast app. And of course, you can also find past episodes, information about us, and plenty of bonus content at usnewsbeat.com. Now, on to the business at hand. In late September, Human Rights Watch, an international non-governmental organization, issued a devastating report accusing one of the most well-known police forces in the world of serious violations of international human rights laws for a brutal crackdown on peaceful protesters in June. Demonstrators were hit with batons, pepper sprayed in the face, and beaten to the ground. Among those arrested were legal observers who had documentation which permitted them to oversee the protest, and protect people's right to assemble. While Human Rights Watch has a history of documenting egregious human rights violations committed by authoritarian regimes, the subject of this investigation was the NYPD, and specifically its actions during a June 4 protest in the South Bronx. As you'll hear, the unprovoked crackdown on protesters was pre-planned, and some of the explanations for quashing the march have since been contradicted by Human Rights Watch's investigation. Here's a preview of a video that Human Rights Watch produced for its report.
0: On the evening of June 4th, around 300 protesters gather at what's known as The Hub, the intersection of 149th Street and 3rd Avenue in Mott Haven, a predominantly black and brown neighborhood in the South Bronx, for one of many marches happening around the city that day. It was a peaceful protest. But this march would end with a violent police crackdown and mass arrest. Human Rights Watch has interviewed and reviewed testimony from dozens of witnesses and analyzed over 150 videos taken by protesters and bystanders. We found that the New York Police Department used the 8 p.m. curfew to justify a plan to trap, assault, and arrest the protesters.
3: Now, our editors Rashid Mian and Christopher Towarski were lucky enough to interview Ida Sawyer, the report's co-author and the acting crisis and conflict director at Human Rights Watch, for this bonus episode. For more on the investigation and our complete catalog of episodes featuring other incredible sources and our unique ingredient of original verses performed by independent hip-hop artists, head over to usnewsbeat.com for important links. In fact, at the end of this episode, you'll get a taste of what that sounds like. We include a snippet from our episode, Criminalizing Protest, the U.S. government's militarized and legislative crackdown on people's right to dissent, which features one of our artists in residence, Liquid. Check that one out when you get a chance. But first, here's Rashad and Chris with Ida Sawyer.
1: Ida, what was the genesis of the June 4th protest in Mott Haven? And for context, can you tell listeners a little bit about this community and the history of policing in this area of the South Bronx?
0: Sure. So the, the protest in Mott Haven on June 4th was known as the FTP4 protest, and it was organized by a coalition of grassroots groups led primarily by black and brown women from the Bronx, uh, and included uh, Take Back the Bronx, Decolonize This Place. Bronxites for NYPD accountability, and these groups have been dedicated to police and prison abolition. Uh, They fight for racial justice, decolonization, anti-gentrification, anti-capitalism. They're also very active in the community, organizing mutual aid projects to support community members and that type of thing. Uh, And they had previously organized other FTP protests uh, about specifically about over-policing in New York subways. So there were three earlier ones in November of last year and then the third in January of this year. And during those first demonstrations, protesters sometimes engaged in mass fare evasion and that got a lot of attention and probably triggered increased NYPD scrutiny of the group's activities. So these are organizations that are from from the community, well-known, very outspoken against police brutality, against policing, against prisons. So they organized this protest uh, as part of many other protests organized across New York, across the country, following the police killing of George Floyd on May 25th. And this protest happened in Mott Haven, which is itself a neighborhood that has experienced for decades some of the most damaging consequences of systemic racism and police brutality. It has some of the highest poverty rates in the country, highest homelessness rates, lowest graduation rates from high school. Uh, in the city. It was one of the neighbourhoods hardest hit by the COVID-19 pandemic and this protest of course occurred in June near the height of the pandemic here in New York and it's also a neighbourhood that has been aggressively over-policed for many years and of New York City's 77 police precincts, the 40th precinct, uh, which covers Mott Haven, has had the not highest number of complaints for police use of physical force. So this really happened in a neighborhood that kind of in many ways epitomized what protesters were were out in the streets protesting and the the damaging effects of police brutality and, and racism that this country has seen and this community in particular.
4: And Ida, you touched upon part of this, but before we get into exactly what occurred toward the end of this particular demonstration, can you just explain sort of the pretense for the large police response in terms of what has the NYPD since said about that particular demonstration?
0: The NYPD, already before the protests began, they issued a warning from the 40th precinct that this protest could result in violence. They spread information that this group has a history of hiding bricks and then using them to conduct violence during protests. That we did not find any evidence to back that claim up. They also The the day, starting the day after the protest, then we started hearing more justifications from the NYPD uh, going up to the police commissioner, Shea, who said at a press conference that the protesters were planning to incite violence and that this was outside agitators going to cause tear down society and attack police officers.
2: We are handling numerous peaceful assemblies throughout the city at any one point in time overwhelmingly they are uh good people coming out to voice their opinion about a number of issues most of them dealing with law enforcement that they think is unjust and again for the hundredth time we support them and we're going to protect them some of these assemblages are advertising this is peaceful some of them actually go the other direction and say this is not going to be a peaceful protest if you're peaceful don't come That's exactly what was billed and advertised at 149th Street yesterday. I don't know if you know this. And and regardless, I I do appreciate and respect your position as a member of the media to be there regardless. But they put out posters advertising that they were going to burn things down, that they were going to injure cops, that they were going to cause mayhem. That was the plan. We disrupted the plan.
0: Again, in all of our research, the interviews that we conducted reviewing 155 videos recorded during the protest, we found no evidence of any violence, threats of violence, vandalism carried out by the protesters or the organizers. The police did point to some of the social media flyers and claim that this was incitement to violence and that they were calling in gang members the only thing we found there were some flyers posted on social media that had a police car burning and one had someone jumping over a police officer but there were no you know, explicit calls for violence to the contrary there was also a code of conduct for the protest that was posted online and they you know called on protesters they denounced goofy, irresponsible behaviors said to follow the lead from people from the hood who were leading the protest, uh, and they explicitly called on people not to bring weapons to the protest. But it seems, you know, what many people who we interviewed, who participated in the protest, who were there, they really felt like the police wanted to send a message specifically to these organizers, the groups behind this protest, and to this community. And you know, as I said before, these were some of the most outspoken critics of the NYPD police brutality, and they felt that that's kind of why they wanted to send the message, and then created all of these allegations, many of which were, were debunked by others.
1: So, Ida, can you take us through the demonstration and also the initial escalation from the NYPD? And can you please explain to listeners also this tactic that you describe in the protest that's used a lot now throughout the the country, this thing called kettling?
0: Yeah, the protest began uh, at what's known as the hub on 149th and 3rd Avenue in in the South Bronx. And people started gathering at around 6 and they, you know, there were stands, people were handing out masks for the participants, and some of the organizers gave speeches. And in the beginning, many people already noticed that there was a you know, the heavy police presence surrounding the hub and the area where the, the demonstration started. And you know, several people noticed that there were police officers on the roof of a building overlooking the hub, but they weren't. The police at that point you know didn't try to interfere or stop the protest from from happening but there was that kind of heavy presence from the start at around seven the demonstrators started walking and marching through the neighborhood and from the, the beginning there there was no interference by the police and it was really people described it as almost an, an educational tour of the neighborhood and the leaders were sort of pointing out different landmarks. They went by La Murada, which is a neighborhood restaurant whose family who runs the restaurant had been very active in providing up to 1,200 free meals a day to vulnerable community members during the pandemic. They also pointed out a building where there had recently been an ice raid early in the morning on an apartment building a place where people had been shot earlier this year. They went through uh, a number of public housing complexes, the Patterson Houses, Millbrook Houses, uh, that they sort of, that are in Mott and pointed those out to people. And many people said that community members Kind of joined in with the protest as they walked by. Some people were out, you know, sticking their heads out the windows, banging on pots and pans to show their support for the protesters. And it was, you know, serious issues, but in some ways, kind of a, a joyous almost atmosphere for, for the first part of the march. And then they are going down Willis Avenue and getting towards uh, 130. 5th Street, they then see ahead of them a line of at least 50 police officers blocking the road in front of them, so they decide to turn around, they do not confront the police line, they just make a U-turn and then turn down 136th Street, and then as they're walking down 136th Street, uh, they're approaching Brown Avenue, and then all of a sudden the bike officers come to the side of the march and sort of zoom past them, and then form a line in front of the protesters, blocking them, lift their bikes up, and use their bikes as a shield to block people from going forward. And then right after that, a line of police officers comes in from behind. So the protesters can't turn around to go back. And this, it's a very kind of narrow, sloping road. There are parked cars on either side and then buildings. So there's no place for people to go on the sides.
3: And they're trapped. Police have us surrounded right now. Police got us trapped. They They f***ing out here right now on the bullhorn, telling us that we can't be here after 8. I got your phone, babe. And we ain't do nothing wrong. At about 7.45, they intentionally started cornering us. They have us pushed in, in a pin. We peaceful protesting. Mother f***ing Briggs got us f***ing trapped in right now. Nobody's doing nothing. Nobody's doing nothing. They are not allowing us to move. We are trapped. We are trapped right now. Whatever narrative is spun to you later, do not believe it. They have held- this is a tactic known as peddling when police
0: officers surround a group of people, a group of protesters, and leave them with no way to escape, no means to disperse. So that happened before 8 p.m. Uh, before. So, this is the period the curfew was in place due to looting in other parts of the city.
5: I am extending. The curfew, which I announced would be beginning again at 8 p.m. tonight, going till 5 a.m. Wednesday morning. We're gonna continue that curfew for the remainder of this week. 8 p.m. each evening till 5 a.m. the next morning.
0: Everyone we talked to emphasized that there hadn't been any looting in that neighborhood, but before 8 p.m., they were trapped. No way, no means to disperse. And then just after 8 p.m., the police officers just move in on the protesters and, you know, unprovoked, without warning, just start beating down on them, wailing their batons, jumping up on the tops of cars and beating down on the protesters, firing pepper spray directly into their faces and shoving people to the ground. And then they start rounding up people for arrest. Oh, Oh, Yo, whoa. Those are all police coming in. Oh, sh**. Oh, sh**. Oh, my God. In total, at least 263 people were arrested and taken to jail during when the police broke up the protest in this way.
4: And Ida, were were you able to document how many people suffered injuries At the hand of the nypd and the extent of some of those injuries
0: yeah so based on all the interviews that we conducted we confirmed that at least 61 uh protesters legal observers and bystanders sustained injuries during the crackdown and this included lacerations a broken nose a lost tooth a sprained shoulder, a broken finger, many black eyes, and some with potential nerve damage because the zip ties were overly tight when they were arrested. Um, And then separately from that, from our analysis of the video footage, we were able to count 21 incidents of police beating protesters with batons, in many cases when they were standing. On top of a parked car, 11 incidents of police officers punching or kicking protesters, 19 cases of police slamming, tackling, or dragging protesters, 14 cases of police firing pepper spray directly at participants' faces, 4 incidents of police throwing bikes against protesters, and 2 cases where police restrained participants with a knee to the face or upper neck. And with all of these injuries that people sustained, what made it even worse was that the police obstructed the medics who had been deployed to the protest from providing immediate medical care to the injured protesters. So a number of medics were there. Uh, They're called street medics. They're volunteer uh, doctors and other health professionals who deployed a protest. They're wearing scrubs and have the Red Cross insignia on their scrubs. So they're clearly identifiable as medics. Um, and the police went towards them. They were among the first. Several were detained and others were just blocked from getting near the, the protesters to provide support. So you know, people described seeing protesters with like blood dripping from their faces and these open wounds and then being held in cuffs for hours taken to jails across the city, detained into the night the next morning, in some cases not released until the next afternoon. And then you know, people who were providing jail support to try to help people when they were eventually released, they said that they saw people who still had these untreated wounds. And some people had to you know, immediately take protesters to get medical attention right after being released.
1: And I have two questions. Can you um, first explain this the role of this curfew uh, that the mayor had imposed? Especially these accusations from some people that the curfew was unevenly policed throughout the city, and that they're you know alleging unfair. Uh, treatment in, in communities of color. And then secondly, can you talk about another issue that you reported on extensively, the arrest of the legal observers and sort of what that means? You, you, you mentioned a, a scenario where an NY, uh, officer, when NYPD legal written on his uniform, pointed to the um, the legal observers and said, quote, good to go, meaning arrest them. Uh, so how, how was that justified?
0: Yeah. So so on your first question, many of the people we interviewed who participated in this protest had been in protest across the city in the days before, mostly in Manhattan and Brooklyn, and also in the days following and they said that often, you know, the protests went on past curfew and sometimes you know, maybe after 10 p.m. police would come and call on people to disperse, but it definitely wasn't happening at 8 p.m. right at the curfew, and in some cases not happening at all. So the fact that the police were so heavily deployed and, you know, making a point to try to, as the police told us in their response to Human Rights Watch, they said from 8 p.m., this protest was unlawful. All non-essential workers were therefore violating this order and it was lawful to arrest them. So people felt that the that the enforcement of this curfew was very uneven and their sense was that they were being targeted because this was happening in a majority black and brown community of the South Bronx. This wasn't in Manhattan or, or downtown Brooklyn. The other important point on that is that the curfew order was very clear that if people are out past curfew, they should be asked to disperse and to go home and be given an opportunity to do so. And that clearly did not happen in this case, since the protesters were trapped by the police and not given an opportunity to disperse. Um, and Mayor de Blasio was was on the Brian Lair show last Friday uh, during the Ask the Mayor segment. And, and he said, when asked about this particular protest and the police response, he said warnings have to be given very clearly and people have to be given time to adjust to those warnings in reference to the curfew
5: order. Peaceful protesters have to be respected if there's going to be arrests for a specific reason in a protest context the warnings have to be given very clearly and people have to be given time to adjust to those warnings i've been in a lot of protests and what officers are supposed to do is say if it's the curfew or if they need you to not be in a street or whatever it is they're supposed to give you due warning ...to be able to adjust so that if you do not intend to be arrested in a protest context, you can avoid arrest.
0: And then he went on to say if that didn't happen, then that's going to be a real problem for the people who are in charge that were on that scene.
5: If that didn't happen, then that's going to be a real problem for the people who were in charge on that scene.
0: So it's good for him to recognize that, but we're now four months on from the protest and no one's been held to account for what happened. On your second question about the the legal observers, there were at least around 20 legal observers deployed to this protest uh, from the National Lawyers Guild and the Black uh, Legal Observers Collective Block. And these are volunteers who deploy to protest uh, in clearly identifiable hats and wearing badges that show that they're legal observers. And they're there to document police conduct and... If people are arrested, then they take down the names of people who are arrested and ensure that they have legal and other support on the other side. Legal observers have been deploying to protest for decades. Their role is recognized in the New York, uh, the NYPD patrol guide. So they, you know, it's a it's a recognized role, um, and they're, you know, clearly allowed to be, should be allowed to be present during protest regardless of whether the protests themselves are declared lawful or not. So these legal observers were at the, the June 4th protest in Haven. And when the kettling began and the police crackdown started, the legal observers were among the first to be targeted for arrest. And many of them were kind of standing to the side on the upper upper side of the, the sloping hill and police came over to them and started rounding them up, uh, in some cases violently. And then they were pushing back and saying we're legal observers. They actually had documentation from the mayor's office clarifying that they were exempt from the curfew and allowed to be out to document or to be present during protest. And there was you know, some, I guess, talk between the officers and then what's caught on video is a police officer with NYPD legal written on their uniform, who says, sort of directs the others, legal observers can be arrested, they're good to go. So no, no question that they knew that these were legal observers and that they were being, you no. Know, the other officers were being instructed to, to arrest them. So eventually 13 of them were uh, were arrested, they were cuffed, um, put in these zip ties and, uh, and blocked from doing their work to document and take down names of what was happening to the rest of the protesters. Eventually they were then released um, before being taken to jails. but they, you know, they clearly had, had been targeted. Uh, again, uh, on, the, on the Blair Show Ask the Mayor segment last Friday, Mayor de Blasio When asked about uh, the NYPD saying that the legal observers were not exempt from from the curfew, Um, the NYPD actually, in their letter to us, they also doubled down on this and said very clearly, legal observers did not enjoy an exemption as essential workers, uh, despite the clarification the mayor's office had given earlier. And when asked about this, Mayor de Blasio said, with all due respect to the NYPD, The NYPD is wrong on this one.
5: The legal observer doing what a legal observer is supposed to to identify themselves and clarify their role, of course, they're not supposed to be arrested.
0: Again, good that he's recognizing that now, but what, you know, he has the authority to act if the NYPD is is disobeying what's in his curfew order and he hasn't taken any action yet.
1: Um, I'm wondering, did the NYPD's behavior toward the protesters change after the legal observers were arrested? Did you notice anything change in terms of just the aggressiveness of the crackdown?
0: i mean, the the legal observers, most of them were detained kind of right at the start, and that's when the very violent behavior by the police escalated. Um, so, So, I mean, in some, it was a bit, some of it was happening kind of at the same time, um, but it it definitely seemed like there was an effort to round up the legal observers first so then they could proceed with their very violent crackdown on the rest of the protesters.
4: Now, Ida, this obviously occurred during the global pandemic for COVID. And you mentioned how uh, many of those who were arrested sat there in the cell and their wounds were not treated. Did you observe or see any type of care given uh, to the fact that this is a global pandemic, uh, either to, to to help stop the spread or, or masks or clothes or anything like that, with those who were arrested?
0: No. So this was another big concern that the protesters had and that we had in doing this research. Most of the protesters did appear to be wearing masks during during the protest during the march. They said before they were distributing uh, masks to anyone who didn't have one at the start. Uh, many of the police officers, however, were not wearing masks. And then as people were being, you know, when the crackdown happened, the first thing was that they were just, they were scrunched together and people were literally on top of each other. You know, people described kind of, holding up someone above them and having someone below them trying not to fall down on the people and on the, the person line below them. And so this was a very cramped situation when the kettling first happened. So people were being you know thrown together where they're of course put at greater risk of spreading COVID-19 or the, you know the, there's greater risk of the virus spreading they're in such cramped conditions. And then when the arrest started, you know, some people said that the police officers even like pulled down their masks when they were arrested. I remember one person we interviewed said he was first punched by a police officer and then another police officer came, pulled down his mask, sprayed his face with pepper spray, and then arrested him. And so, you know, some people, police deliberately pulled down their masks, others just in all of the chaos, their masks fell down and their hands were zip tied behind their backs, so they couldn't hold the mask in the back to cover their face. And then from there, they were held you know, first, again, in very close quarters, sitting on the ground with their hands zip tied, waiting for the police to uh, then move to transport and process them. Eventually they're put in crowded vans, again, more exposure um, in tight conditions. And then they're taken to jails. Uh, Many were taken to Queens, central Booking. Some were taken to Brooklyn. Some were taken to precincts in the Bronx. And there they were again held in crowded cells and most cases not given PPE. Some people said, you know, hours into the detention, um, once they were taken first to Queens and then taken to Brooklyn, they were offered a mask. Um, But that was... You know after hours and hours of being exposed. So you know for uh, in our analysis this was clearly you know could be considered a right to health violation. We also you know human rights watch around the world we have urged governments to reduce their jail and prison populations given the heightened risk of COVID-19 for detainees and staff and so we've even you know we've called on authorities to only engage in custodial arrests of bringing people into jail when it's strictly necessary and in this case you know especially given that those arrested during the protest were not engaged in violence presented no immediate threat to commit violence there was really no justification for custodial arrest especially at the height of the pandemic
4: and Ida you outlined uh, such brutal tactics um, obviously some of these things could be could fit under the realm of uh, civil rights violations. Uh, your report uh, does an incredible job also outlining, you know, some of the human rights violations. So I wonder if you could expand on on that, if there are others maybe that you haven't mentioned yet in terms of human rights violations that were committed during this incident.
0: Yeah, so I mean, it was clearly, um, you know, we documented serious violations of international human rights law. And this includes the excessive force used against protesters. According to international human rights law, force can only be used in very limited circumstances when it's of last resort and violence is happening, there's immediate threat of violence. That clearly was not the case. Also, uh, how the police acted was in violations of people's right to peaceful assembly and free expression preventing them from continuing to do that. An argument could be made that the curfew order in and of itself was overly broad and vague and an infringement on people's free assembly, free expression rights. Uh, And then the targeting of legal observers and those providing jail support was an infringement on the rights of human rights defenders uh, who, who should never be targeted for carrying out their work. And then there's also the the right to health violations that I mentioned earlier with targeting the medics and then denying people access to immediate uh, care and also the increased exposure to COVID-19.
1: And Ida, uh, you mentioned it, but I want to go into it a little more. And that was uh, Mayor de Blasio's interview on WNYC on October 2nd. Um, And he also said that he had yet to read your report. And though he said that the characterization that um, yeah, uh, that Brian Lair proposed during his question of an unprovoked attack on protesters was inconsistent with what he heard from the city's own civilian observers. He also said he's waiting on an independent review to be finalized and noted that there was a quote, threat of violence related to the protests. So can you just respond to uh, the mayor's comments on the Brian Lair show? And then secondly, can you explain um, the remarks from commissioner Dermot Shea shortly after the protest about a gun and gasoline being discovered during the demonstrations?
4: Yeah.
0: So so Mayor de Blasio did, you know, unfortunately he had not read the report. We've sent it to him. We hope that he will read it and also watch the, the twelve minute video that we've done. But he he claimed uh, on the on the Brian Lair show that there was a, quote, a special circumstance during the Mott Haven protest with, quote, a threat of violence and some evidence that it was being played out. But he he failed to provide
5: any details.
4: So my first question on this is, do you dispute anything in the Human Rights Watch report?
5: Well, I have not read it yet. And some of that characterization does not sound like what I heard at the time, including from our own observers, from civilian observers who were there. But I will say this. Uh, I am awaiting uh, an independent review by the Department of Investigation and our law department. Uh, I want to know exactly what did happen. I want to know exactly what was done right. And if things were done wrong, people need to be held accountable. If practices have to be changed, they should be. Uh, There was a very specific set of circumstances there. There was a specific issue earlier in that evening uh, with a threat of violence and some evidence of violence that I know affected the environment. But more importantly, we've got to get the objective facts. And that's why a full investigation is being done.
0: Going back to what Commissioner Shea said immediately the day after the protest, he he also had claimed that the police had recovered a firearm and gasoline from the protesters and... He used that to sort of defend his allegation that this protest was an attempt by, quote, outside agitators to cause mayhem, tear down society, and injure cops. But it turns out, as other officials later revealed, um, the firearm was recovered from a couple about a half mile away from the march over an hour before it had started. The gasoline he cited had been found the night before and there was no apparent connection of either with the protest. So Mayor de Blasio said that he had other evidence. Um, I don't know what that would be. In all of our research, we you know, we found no evidence of this violence or threat of violence being carried out during the protest. And he did say that they, he's waiting for this review um, you know, where it's now Four months on, uh, we feel that there is now ample information available for him to for the mayor to take action to discipline uh, those responsible for the serious international human rights law violations and other violence and abuse, as well as the mischaracterization that Commissioner Shea spread. And we you know, continue to urge him to take action.
4: And Ida, your analysis documents how the NYPD's actions were pre-planned, premeditated. Number one, what does this say about how the state views constitutional rights to free speech, freedom to assemble? And more so, you know, with your, with your expertise covering human rights abuses all across the globe, how does this response and others observe during this reckoning against racial injustice in this country how does this compare to what you've observed in militant crackdowns in authoritarian and militaristic regimes across the globe?
0: Yeah, what we documented was that this, this assault was, was planned, premeditated. Commissioner Shea even admitted that publicly the next day, saying we had a plan which was nearly flawlessly executed in the Bronx Terence Monahan is the Chief of Department of the NYPD. He led this operation, he was present on the ground, he's caught on video giving the go-ahead to have Shannon Jones, one of the protest organizers, arrested. This was, this was an operation carried out and led by top brass of the NYPD. And it really exemplifies a broader system, a broader culture that condones and encourages abuse and fuels impunity. And Monaghan is there setting the example for all the police officers below him that this type of behavior is not only okay, it's, what it's what's expected of them. So we, you know, we, we're not, we can't expect this, this type of behavior to end, to stop, when the highest levels are, are leading it and, and there aren't any consequences. In our research, we also tried to calculate the cost of this operation, you know, beyond the significant harm to protesters, what's the financial cost to New York City taxpayers? And we looked at, you know, there's the cost of deploying scores of police officers and all of their gear, the two helicopters flying overhead, the cost of arresting, transporting, processing, potentially prosecuting 263 people. But then we found that the most significant cost will likely result from all of the misconduct, investigations, complaints, and lawsuits that will stem from this protest. Already, at least around 100 people have filed notice of their intent to sue the city. And we've compared that to similar situations to try to estimate how much this could cost. And we believe this is likely to end up costing New York City taxpayers at least several million dollars. The most striking comparison is to the 2004 uh, protest around the Republican National Convention. And there, the NYPD used similar tactics of kettling protesters and then conducting mass arrests. And Terence Monaghan was one of the key players ordering those same tactics back in 2004. Since then, that protest ended up costing the city 36 million dollars in the payouts, as well as the related legal fees. And Monahan himself has just been promoted to his position now as chief of department. So that just really exemplifies how aggressive, abusive policing is being rewarded. And, you know, I think for us, it just really brings home the critical importance of broader issues of why the protesters were out on the street protesting and we need structural change we need to drastically reduce the role of policing in new york city across the country Uh, instead be investing in the real needs of the communities and and also ensure there are credible independent mechanisms to hold police officers to account for abuse getting to your other question around how does this compare uh, to what we document around the world? I have spent many years living in the Democratic Republic of Congo. there documented a lot of brutal security force crackdowns on police peaceful protesters and and in other contexts And you know I think the, the scale of violence and abuse can vary in different contexts in, in Kinshasa I was documenting, Scores of people being killed and shot dead during these protests by the security forces. So so we weren't documenting that in Mott Haven. But what was strikingly similar is the complete sense of that the security forces are above the law and accountable to no one, and that they can carry out this abuse and and that and feel that there won't be any consequences for it. And that's something that we've documented in Congo and Kinshasa and many other places around the world and now here in
1: New York City. Just the last thing from me, de Blasio mentioned that for this specific demonstration and the response to it, he's waiting for that review. Obviously, Human Rights Watch published its own analysis of what happened. The New York City Attorney General has issued a broader report documenting similar behaviors that you uncovered. At protests across the city and accusations um, of excessive force against protesters, and I think some of the most most of the accusations are about excessive force so what's your take on how police have behaved overall in the last few months in the United States responding to these uprisings since the the death of George Floyd, Brianna Taylor, and so many others
0: yeah, so this the police response that we documented in detail in our report in Mott was one of the more aggressive police responses to protests, but it was by no means the only case of police responding to these protests with violence and abuse. And there are hundreds of incidents have been reported across New York City, across the country where police, you know, excessive use of so-called less lethal weapons, firing tear gas, rubber bullets, in some, in some cases directly at protesters or journalists or observers, and you know, hovering helicopters too low above protesters, spreading the voter wash in a way that's very dangerous it should not be should not be conducted. Uh, so there, you know, there are serious abuses that have happened across the country in response to the George Floyd protest and again I think this really emphasizes not just in New York but across the country the the importance and the real need for for structural change to finally you know the system needs to change so that police don't feel like they can get away with this behavior and that this sort of aggressive policing is, is acceptable or the norm. But we need systemic changes across the country.
1: All right. Thank you, Ida. I think that's all we have. And uh, for the listeners, we'll we'll share a link to the report and, and the video, and we encourage them to check it out themselves. But we really appreciate your insights. Thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks so much for having me. One of the big trends that we've seen with this anti-protest legislation generally is that it seems to be reacting to the most successful, most powerful tactics that are used by protesters. So a lot of the bills that we've seen respond to the anti-pipeline protests near Standing Rock and other related protests, also racial justice protests in Missouri that shut down highways to protest the police killing of Mike Brown. So it really is rather than reacting with substantive change to the things that the protesters are speaking out about, it looks like state legislators are reacting to the tactics and trying to make that attempt to make their voice louder actually quieter, making it harder for them to speak out and talk about the things that they find troubling in society.
4: Bag bag, bag it's a full on terrorist, terrorist attack. attack. Bag, bag. Mass surveillance keep the writers intact. Bag, bag. But that's a lie, and we know the full facts. Bag, bag. US patrol on the troll as you scroll, my. Facial recognition tally up the toe, my. We in the streets, you can wear that blindfold, my. From Standing Rock to Ferguson, we on our own, my. My head up. Uh, in their prison, tear gas, freezing water, it's beyond chilling. No more division of well-wishing in dark days, we the prison. You want this oil, we the chrism. Uh you want this oil, you a pilgrim. You did this to our ancestors, not our children. The urgency is beyond its urgency.
2: Who you call when 911 is the
3: enemy emergency. I am brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy property
2: Rage. And this is news.